Welcome to the good, the bad, and the sequel Q&A. My name's Doug. So the next sequel that we're going to be covering is the first time we're going boldly where our sequel watching journey has never gone before, and that's Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. I have not seen a lot of them, but I'm going to be doing a lot of homework in between now and when we record our review next week, and whew, I am so excited and scared at the same time because I do not want to upset the Trekkies that are out there. There's a lot of them, and they love Star Trek, so I'm going to do my best, and you know who's the best? This week's guest, special effects and makeup master Steve Neal. I reached out to Steve a while back, and we connected, man, I think it was just before you know, COVID hit, and we chatted about his career, how he got started, and one of the things that changed his life was when he went and saw a certain Stanley Kubrick movie, which I'll let him explain it because I think it's a really cool story, and then how his love for Star Trek you know, blended over because he worked on Star Trek The Motion Picture, and then he actually worked on Six. That's why we're covering it. And then along the way, man, Saturday the 14th, Ghostbusters, Fright Night, and just so much more. I love talking with Steve. He crossed paths with so many legends in the special effects game, and he's one of them as well. And I was so happy that he took the time to share his story with me because it's one that I absolutely love. So before I start the interview, please review, rate, share us wherever you're listening. It helps us grow and more people can listen to us and check us out. And then if you're new, subscribe. We have so many amazing interviews and sequel reviews that you'll love and backlog. We have a lot. This is like episode 191. So you have a lot to go back and check out. And then also... Anything we talk about in the interview, I'll put the links in the episode notes, stevenealsgarage.com. He has a ton of stuff, his podcast, some great videos he does, and then also he does some amazing masks and uh, building kits, which we kind of talk about in the interview. Man, I love his Planet of the Apes mask. And he has stories about working on Planet of the Apes, the TV series. So uh without further ado, here is... Special effects and make a master, Steve Neal. Cool, man. So the way I do this is like figuring out how people got started, um, what their passion was. Maybe it wasn't their first first career choice. So w- first of all, where did you grow up. Oh, I grew up in San Francisco. Oh, nice. You know, it's, it, uh, that was during the fifties and the sixties, and and my family was very uh, art and science both based. I sort of grew up in the arts and sciences surrounding me and concert violinists and concert pianists and, uh, you know, people that were engineers and, and uh, astronomers and that kind of thing. So. so what was like one of the first things that you had all that surrounding you? What were some of the first things that you wanted to do growing up? Well, one of the first things I wanted to do growing up was to be, you know, involved in aerospace, to be involved in is either an astronaut or uh, involved in getting humankind its space wings. That was my, my main thrust, my main interest from the time I was a little kid. It's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool uh, ambition to have. Yeah, well, it, it is. And it, 
but it's also a really terribly difficult field to get into and requires a lot of a lot of education and sometimes you know military uh, enlistment to become a pilot to be an astronaut so it was you know, it was something that constantly weighed on me as I was in high school and stuff, you know, thinking, do I really want to go through all that? Is there something else that would somewhat serve a similar purpose, but without having to go through all of that. And how did you find your way into, into doing what you did and still do for the last? Well, yeah, I was watching Star Trek, you know, when it, when it first aired and I, I liked it a lot because unlike so much science fiction, uh, I was very judgmental in science fiction for the most part. I didn't like campy stuff that much. And, oh, I'd watch it because there was nothing else to watch, but like Lost in Space and things like that, Boys yeah. of Fantasy. But when Star Trek came along, it was, you know, Gene's kind of vision for a better planet Earth where people came together and uh, dropped all this BS about the different races on planet. There's only one race, and that's the human race. And you know, and, and making us unite and, and move together into space to explore space, which really brought the planet together and ended all the problems. Um, and I really liked that about Star Trek. But then one day, a friend of mine in high school said, Steve, I, I just saw this movie, a space film, and I think you'll really like it. And, it's, it, and he remembers saying, it's better than Star Trek. It's so far beyond Star Trek. You just got to see it. I said, okay, well, what was it? He says, this movie called 2001 Space Odyssey. Oh, nice. So I didn't have a car yet. So I, you know, I was only 16. So I jumped on a bus because I was living in Pacifica, California, which is about 20 minutes, 25 minutes away from San Francisco, beautiful coastal town. And took the bus up there and went to the uh, San Francisco Golden Gate Theater, which was a Cinerama theater set up especially for at that time for 2001 Space Odyssey. And I went in to watch that film and I did not come out the same person. That is awesome. Yeah, that, that was it. My mind, I, I was totally blown away, you know, on so many levels that film affected me, not just, you know, like because it was the greatest science fiction film ever made, but Stanley Kubrick, Odyssey Clark, uh, the message in it, the very simple story in it that everybody tried to overcomplicate and just really, you know, kind of was a wake up call to me because at that point I was very involved in still photography because my grandmother uh, worked very closely with Ansel Adams. I used to go to his house for dinner and all this stuff. And so uh, in high school, we had a really good photography department, their own lab and everything. And Miss Ann Sweeney, who was the teacher and she was incredible. And we got to work with really nice cameras because the school had money. So we had really nice cameras and things. And I got a really good dose of getting in the photography. So when I saw 2001, it was like, I know what I want to do. I want to make films about space travel and do good, serious science fiction movies and stuff because I, I feel it would have an influence as these types of films have always had on our actual reality. Uh, we owe, technologically speaking, almost everything we have today, including this phone I'm on, to 2001 A Space Odyssey and Star Trek, because they were all imagined first. Imagination always comes first, and as Einstein said himself, imagination is more important than knowledge. And because you can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you don't have the imagination to create the spaceship that got us to the moon, all the knowledge won't help you. So, you know, it, it, it makes the case that artists and people who imagine are, are extremely important. Every bit as important as the rocket scientists, 
that made the rockets that we imagined that got us to the moon and beyond. So, and I thought, well, you know, here's a way to get involved in my favorite subject matter and do films about it and stuff. So that, that's what really got me into the film business. As far as model making and stuff, I always built models with my dad. We, we were always involved in building model plastic kits. And I used to make my own things because I didn't like the toys that the toy companies offered because they, you know, they, they put out a plastic kit of the phaser and tricorder from Star Trek. And they were awful. <laughs> they were just awful. So it, it just, it made you make your own. And that's what sets you on that sort of path of being a maker much like my friend Adam Savage, same influences and all the makers, same influences. We would, we would see some film and go, God, I really want that weapon from that sci-fi film like Blade Runner. And, you know, nobody would make a good replica of it. So you'd make it yourself. And and doing that, you became a maker, you became a prop maker, you became a makeup artist uh, doing special makeup like Planet of the Apes, which was another big influence. Oh God, what a phenomenal movie. Yeah, well, it's it's been my my luck for some reason that, you know, I saw that film. I wanted to know how it was done. And, you know, back in those days, we had a making of, which was real short, that showed you little glimpses of the lab and what they were doing. But then there were magazine articles. And from all that, I sort of figured out how it was done and did my own Planet of the Apes makeup, which evolved into one that ended up, by the time it came to L.A., looking like the actual makeup very, very realistically, which got me a job in the studios doing makeup prosthetics and stuff. So that film had a big influence on my career as well. Um, And I ended up doing mostly makeup effects for years, but always wanting to make a film, which I later did. So so what was that first studio that you worked for? Uh, Little tiny one, 20th Century Fox, you might have heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> I worked on the Planet of the Apes TV show briefly. And, oh, really? That's awesome. Yeah. It wasn't too long after that that I met Rick Baker. We became friends. We lived, I had moved out to the valley. We only lived like a couple of blocks away from each other. So we used to share things all the time. And he helped me get work. And we were always doing things together. And it just led to more and more work and, and meeting more and more directors like Larry Cohen and who gave me my real start in a feature film. And Jim Wynorski, you worked, you worked with him a bunch too, right? I worked with Jim Wynorski. Yeah. yeah. Fred Owen Ray. Yeah, I worked for Roger Corman a whole bunch. Uh, Sandy Cohen. I did a bunch of different things like the green monkey and the, the dark tower uh, in films like that. That that's Sandy Howard. I'm sorry, Sandy Howard. But you know, between those, all those guys, I did a lot of work before I ended up working for boss films and I worked on ghostbusters and fright night and it just kept going on and on. But really out of all that stuff that I did, the, the first thing that was the most amazing thing to me when I came to Hollywood is I got to know Bob Schiffer, who was the head makeup artist for like, I don't know, 50 years at Disney. And through him, I met Fred Phillips, of course, who was famous for doing outer limits and star Trek and both very, very nice gentlemen. And they helped me get some work. And so in turn, I helped Fred Phillips get some work. And and I had done this Shaggy Dog TV show. But in those days, you couldn't just like pay money and get right into the union. You had to take a test. You had had so many days and stuff. So I had not enough days to actually work the set. But they charged me, nevertheless, very high dues back in those days just to be a member of the union. So I had to pick another artist to put on my uh, prosthetics. So I picked Fred Phillips. 
And Fred was grateful to get to work. And when Star Trek got started up, uh, he called me up and asked me to come on board and help him. And the first thing I did was lend Nimoy's ear. So that was like a huge thrill. I, I already knew <laughs> I already knew Gene Rodberry. Met him over and over again at conventions in Majel. Because I used to go to the Star Trek conventions, and I would make prosthetic ears, and and I would sell them and make people up as as Vulcans and that kind of thing, and Planet of the Apes. So Gene got familiar with my work, and so did Majel. So when Fred brought me in, um, Gene was very happy to see me. And it was just amazing because, you know, I did Nimoy's ears and I'm working on them late at night and I'm sculpting them. And he had given me a pair of ears that were used on the actual TV show and they'd never been used. So they were in pristine condition. He said, I want you to replicate these exactly. I said, well, of course, we don't want to change them. So give me Leonard's ear cast and I'm sculpting away on them. The shadow kind of blocks my light. This deep voice comes out. Are those my ears? <laughs> and I looked up, and there's Leonard Nimoy <laughs> towering over me. And he, he already is in the haircut because, you know, by that point, they were getting him ready. And he's a very nice young man, and he walked off. And it was just kind of this eerie moment, you know, that I've had so many of in my career. And then, of course, later, I met with Gene and Robert Wise in, their, in the office. I mean, Robert Wise is a god. I mean, he did, you know, Andromeda Strain. Dave Ears stood still and, amazing movies like that and they wanted me to design some aliens for the bridge uh, on that film which i did and so that that was really a hallmark in my uh, my career was just being able to work on star trek later on of course i worked on it more but that that's the one that i that you know it's always my favorite and people are always surprised when they ask me because they always figured it'll be ghostbusters but Ghostbusters was never high on my list. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you do on Ghostbusters? Because in my email, another guy that worked worked big on a bunch of stuff. I, I interviewed Tim Lawrence. Did you work with him on that at all? Oh yeah. Oh sure. Huh. Poor Tim passed. When? He he passed away. Oh God. I'm pretty sure it was Tim. It was uh a few months ago. Oh no, man. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, it happens. I mean, you know, so many of us from those days. Uh, we worked unprotected with very dangerous chemicals. Nobody knew. Yeah. And it's taken out a lot of my friends. I've just been fortunate that I guess my genes are strong enough to repel it because I had the same exposure. I'm pretty sure Tim passed. Yeah. I just, I just listened to Rick Baker's interview. He was on Mark Barron. And when I was listening to it, I'm like, Oh man, I was like, you know what? Let me send this to Tim. And then, ah, man, that's, he was such a great guy. Yeah, everybody really loved him. So, but yeah, I did work with him. You were asking me about Ghostbusters, was it? Yeah, yeah. What would you do in that film? Oh, that's correct. Yeah. Well, you know, when I, I first got brought in by Howard Ziff, I was brought in to do a jail ghost scene, and it never got done. It never got made in the film. And I had sculpted one of the jail ghosts, which was a, a broad puppet of this sort of pot bellied creature. And I, there's only one picture of it that ever existed that I took on a Polaroid. <laughs> Oh, wow. And it's it's been in a bunch of different magazines and behind the scenes and Blu-ray edition things. I've been interviewed a million times about it, but uh, I did that. And, and they asked me to stop. They said, we're not going to do this. Uh, how do you feel about uh, sculpting us some creature arms that will burst out of a chair and grab Dana in the face? And I said, okay, well, I'm fine. You know, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> so they made some uh, casts uh, of my arms and, and I had these cast of my arms to work on and I sculpted in clay three different types of arms 
and because there's gonna be three hands coming out and i did all sculpting on that and uh, did the you know paint jobs and hair work and craig caton worked with me on that who's another really talented friend of mine uh doing hair work and painting as well uh and i worked very closely with the prop man who, who made the different chairs and there were like three different chairs uh, one set of chairs that we're actually inside in the arms of, and then another set of chairs that were dummy chairs, and the, there were dummy arms on it. This was made for a wide shot, so when when Dana was being pulled along very quickly towards the door and the terror dog behind it, you could see a wide shot in the arms holding her, and they were just dummies, and she just moved, and they sort of moved, and it sold it. And then there was another chair where she's just in it and we could be on the outside. It was for close-ups, just sitting wide open so we could get a good grip on her. All this took like, as I recall, three, four days to shoot. It was, wow. you know, a lot of time went into making the film. It didn't rush through things. The sets were immense. And so there was this great point working with, with Sigourney that, that, uh, that I'll never forget. And that's being in the arm of the chair. And I got to tell you, people have said things about her that worked with her, and I never got it, and I'm not going to repeat it. But she was incredibly professional and pleasant to work with, you know. Yeah. And so I'm. we keep had these pre-treated with acid fabric, so I could bust through it really easily, right? So, you know, they'd, they'd say, okay, roll, you know, action. Okay, now, and you burst through, and I'd grab her in the face, but the hands were foam rubber, but the claws were of a very hard acrylic to look like real nails. And I was really concerned about bruising and hurting her. And so evidently on film, it didn't look like it was grabbing her hard enough. And so they had the one of the arms off, and Ivan Wright was looking down at me, and I'm looking up through this hole in this arm and this chair <laughs> all cramped in there. And he says, listen to what, what, what she has, Sigourney has to say. He says, Steve... I can't act you're hitting me in the head as if you were really doing it. This is really happening as well as if you really did the action. So I want you to hit me as hard as you can. I said, well, these claws can bruise your face and all this. And he says, I don't care. I want this to look really realistic. And, and Ivan looked at me, go ahead. She likes it. <laughs> He's like joking <laughs> with me. Right. So I said, okay. So they sealed me all back up. We did it again. I hit her with everything I had, just like it was. I was really a creature, really grabbing her. And we did a few of those takes, and everybody was happy. And afterwards, the next day, she was black and blue, and she, they did have to put heavier makeup on it. Oh, up. man. But no one, no one complained, least of all her. That was the kind of people they were, and, and they were really dedicated to, to make the film the best they could do. It, it was really an impressive production. It was never my favorite film in the world because – over on the other side of Boss Films, they were working on 2010, a space odyssey. I wanted so bad to be in the model <laughs> park, working on this stuff. And I was supposed to sculpt Star Child, and they, they, they overlooked it. I ended up not doing that either. So that was kind of a disappointment. As it turned out, the film wasn't so hot. So I guess in retrospect, I worked on the better film. Yeah, that's true. And one thing that what I do before these, when, I, when I'm getting ready to talk to somebody, I go the week before just watch a bunch of the movies and one movie i loved growing up my dad used to always make me watch i got to rewatch it the first time in a couple of years but saturday the 14th what were some of the oh, things that you worked on in that well i i worked with rick stratton heavily on that film and, and to tell you the truth I, I think it just kind of worked on everything a little bit of everything and and 
because Rick and I worked a great deal. I, I met Rick Stratton at, and you should interview him. I worked with him. I first met him at Don Post Studios. My first job in town was working at Don Post Studios making masks. And Rick used to come in and he had those sort of Donald Sutherland eyes kind of popping out of his head and this long hair. And he used to come in with a sort of glazed look on his face. He was a real character. And we got to be friends. And so after I went to work at Universal and Land a Thousand Faces, I started getting my own jobs. And I asked Rick, I said, do you want to work with me on this? He said, yeah, absolutely. But then when Rick would start getting jobs because he got into the union and all this stuff, he would also, he would say, hey, Steve, you want to work? And we shared work back and forth. Nice. And that was one of the, one of the films we did, we did. I don't remember a lot about it for some reason. My memory is pretty good. Same, some things I tend to, to uh, not remember so much in detail. Yeah. No, I get it. It's a long time ago and you worked on a bunch of stuff, so I get it. Yeah, we were all, we were all fried back in those days. I mean, <laughs> you know, we were the, uh, we were the rock stars of, 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 of makeup effects, as it was called. And everybody was, was stoned out of their mind. <laughs> <laughs> drugs and making all this money and just having a ball you know so so, so, some areas are a little little glazed you know (laughs) (laughs) is there one movie that you feel like you were able to like show off like everything you could do was it like return of the swamp thing or it's a life three (laughs) one of those yeah you know i love working i love todd masters and his story he is a great human being he came to my studio, Serious Effects, back in the day, as this young guy with his, his portfolio. And I looked through it and I said, my God, this guy's really talented. And he was so nice. And so we ended up working together. And he literally, without him, I could not have done the things I did on the Green Monkey and some other projects. And we've been friends all these years. Of course, he became quite big, done some of the bigger shows around town. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's that's what I really remember about that is, is is working with Todd. Was that on Return of the Swamp thing or It's Alive? Yeah, well, well, Todd. You see, later on, I got Return of the Swamp thing, and I had other jobs going on. I had too much to do, so I farmed out some of it to him. Oh, okay. So I I, I did I, my big thing was the Leech Man. Oh, that, and the guy I love with that. the big brain. Yeah, the guy with the big brain. So, and of course, the other film I get asked about all the time i have a huge fan following for his laser blast <laughs> oh you know it's pretty cool when i was looking through your photos it's cool that you were in uh, it with the makeup on that looks awesome yeah you know and i was not credited and it took a long time for people to figure out that was me so <laughs> yeah. but i made the gun and everything else and of course i made a replica of it last year which got a lot of attention so but that, that was that was a lot of fun doing that. And, of course, that was the first. Well, the second film I did with V, um, we worked on that together. So we worked on everything together until we split up. But then we, even after that, we made close friends, and she would always help me out with uh, makeup tests and uh, work on some of the films I was doing before she got too big to, to work on some of the lower-priced stuff, you know? Yeah. So, but she's terrific. That's cool. And another thing that always caught my eye because I love watching them growing up is like the Puppet Master movies. Yeah, I, I worked on the... Uh, what did I work on? it? I didn't work on the first one. I think I worked on the second one with Dave Allen, my dear friend Dave, who uh, was an amazing human being and a, and a really kind, wonderful gentleman. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So what are some things that you're working on nowadays? Because I checked out your website. You got some pretty cool stuff on there. Well, you know, now it's funny. All these years I worked at my home. I would put up, you know, metal sheds and and use those at different departments. And we call it the tin ghetto. And we would work. (laughs) uh, I never had a studio like Rick had and Todd had and, and, you know, Tom Berman, all the other people I worked with. And John Chambers, of course, I worked for. He did work at home, too. And, of course, he was the creator of Planet of the Apes. I never had, you know, what rented one of those industrial places with offices in front and upstairs and downstairs and the big open bay in the back. And about seven years ago, I did. And, and mostly, I've been just, Mary and I have been just doing our own projects there, although we do get work from time to time and things still come through. But no, no big deal. We made our own film called But Something Is There. We made another film called Martians Attacks. SMG, which was just a spoof. But, you know, I get a lot of things where collectors will ask me for a model of the Starship Enterprise, my big one that I have that I did from scratch, which is 66 inches long. And, but you know, like right now, I'm making a Moonwatcher mask for someone who's a big fan of my work and wants to collect it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, a guy named Jim Davison, who's, who's really quite a talent himself, does a lot of cool stop motion stuff recreations of King Kong and stuff. But um, so we've been doing a lot of things like that. Occasionally people ask me to build models still, although I don't do it as much because, you know, when you buy a model from me and have me build a model, it's, it's anywhere between 10 and $20,000. Well, of course uh, that was great back seven years ago, but now there's a lot of amateurs out there and they never bothered to check with the pros. Hey, what are you getting for a model? And so, you know, they'll take a, a polar a lights, USS Enterprise model, one three fifty, and and it only charged seven or eight hundred dollars to have it built. That model's worth ten grand easy being wow. built. With everything that goes into it, and they never knew that. And they're just kind of basically charging for materials and the kudos of building the model and putting it on the internet and saying, "Look what I built," you know, for my client, your client who maybe you made two hundred dollars from, you know. Yeah. So. Uh, it kind of killed the market. It killed our, our, our industry we had. But there are still some people that say, well, I want a Steve Neal model because Steve worked in the motion picture industry. Steve worked on Star Trek and Steve worked on this and Steve on that and has more value to me. And, and that goes for Simon Merckx and, and Randy Cooper and Randy Newbert and a few other people that I know who are fine model makers and real pros and who have worked in the movie business. <laughs> So every once in a while, you get one coming in. I, get, I just had one come in uh, this week that I'm going to do. And oh, so, cool. yeah. And of course, I've been building model rockets a lot. Um, and we, we started a, a group here in Ventura that is involved in STEM, that is getting youth involved in model rocketry because model rocketry, any kind of model, model airplane, model rocketry is a, is a gateway to people actually building the full size and making the full size things. An example is Neil Armstrong started at two years old with free flight models and model airplanes. And that 
got him into being a pilot and got him on the moon. And if you talk about Werner von Braun, he started with model rockets. And of course, he's the guy that built the Saturn V that got us on the moon. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. So it's our hope to, uh, we're getting a launch field up here, working with the city. The city is actually very supportive of it. Uh, and we're going to start teaching kids how to build serious rockets and launch them uh, and entering contests like the, the American Rocket Challenge uh, and get involved in STEM and get scholarship, scholarships to, to college to become aerospace scientists and astronauts and that kind of thing. So we've been doing a lot of that and selling model rocket kits on the side. That's cool. So when did, when did your series come out? Uh, online it says it's in post-production. Is that on IMDb? Yeah. Is it already out there? Well, it was, the it was, it was finished. There? It, it was it was finished in 2017. Oh, okay. And I uh, I decided just to release it after dropping fifty, sixty grand on it and a bunch of other money of other people. It wouldn't sell because it's a very honest approach to a very delicate and very taboo subject, and that of course is called alien abduction a term which I really don't like and really resent because to say it's alien abduction means A, you know it's an abduction. You don't know that. (laughs) B, you know it's aliens. You don't know that either. All you have is a bunch of people and a lot of them are very honest and very real and they don't want attention and they, they hide from the public and only talk to you about it. So they have nothing to gain that have had exactly the same experiences across the board going back decades. So when the media gets hold of it, they make fun of it, put it down, they make it ridiculous. And I didn't use that approach. I was very straightforward about the whole experience of what it's really like. And not even the UFO community liked it. Some did. The people that's actually had the experience of something they can't explain and don't know what it is and don't use the term I got abducted by aliens. They say, you know, I had the same thing happen to me. I've seen this. I saw the same things. I've seen unidentified flying objects at very close range. I don't understand it. I don't know what it is, but it's happened to me. That's very honest. There's no spin on it. Yeah. They're not trying to get famous. They're not trying to sell a book, you know, and yet they're discounted. And so the film really deals with that. And as a result, it minimized something that, conventions are making tons of money on and liars are making tons of money on by writing uh, fantasy prone books about, well, these people I experienced are from Zeta Reticula and they took my baby and, you know, all this just over the top ridiculous stuff. They act like they know something about it when they don't know anything. I don't know anything about it. I just know that it really happens, but I can't define it. So it remains unknown. And I treated it that way in the film. And um, so it was what I call the successful failure because the letters I got from people who actually have these experiences were amazing. Oh, wow. That's cool. And, and the comments I got on it for people who just hated it purely as a movie that thought it was boring and, and, you know, where's the sound during the abduction scenes and all this stuff was really kind of enlightening as to how uneducated a judgmental public is of something they know nothing about except based on what the media has told them in stupid movies. Yeah. So that was a, it was a real experience for me making that film. Uh, the next film I make is not going to probably be on that subject, but I wanted to do it because it had been in my life since I was a little kid. And 
I got tired of people being called uh, crazy because they had these experiences because I had them myself and I didn't have all the answers. So I just wanted to do something that way. So, yeah. But when you had that experience, were you like really young? Yeah, I was like six years old. Oh, wow. And I, and I didn't tell anybody about it, my parents or anybody, because I thought they'd think that I was crazy or something. So I kept it to myself for years. I don't blame you, especially that young, yeah. Yeah, well, it wasn't until I got involved with uh, my friend Whitley Strieber, the famous author of Communion, that they, they became open about it. And when I did, and I tried to go on TV shows, and I was on a lot of them during the 90s, oh, I, I got stoned to death, not, not only by just the general public, but by my own, my own uh, career, uh, community and career, you know, Oh, Steve's nuts. So let's not hire him anymore. That really happened. It was really sad. Wow. It's okay. It's okay to come out of the closet about being gay or you were a drug addict and you're strung out in heroin, or you saw Jesus in your bread or on bark on a tree, or yeah. anything like that, you know? But if you come out and talk honestly about this subject and say, hey, wait a minute, there's really something to this because it happened to me and I don't understand it any more than you do, but I'm being honest with you. You're just nuts. You're, you're worse than a crazy person and they want nothing to do with you, so. It's terrible because it's like, why, why would somebody just come out there when they see the backlash? I'm sure, sure before you were opened up and told your story, you yeah. saw other people get degraded, but... You, you know what, yeah. what what did you have a, have to gain i don't know why people would try to bash somebody for that well I, yeah i was just trying to say look this happened to me it's real and, and yeah. you, you take you know the famous case of barney and betty hill and it's like those people are on the level they were completely honest about their experience and their experience is so typical so and of course amazingly universal made a movie about it called the ufo incident with james earl jones and that film is just to my to this day surprises me because it was done exactly like the book and they didn't spin it and they didn't make it stupid and it's still probably one of the best movies ever done on the subject. Oh wow. What kind of shows did you appear on? Oh, I was on sightings a whole bunch. Plus I did effects for them. I did paranormal borderline, I did oh, the wow. other side, I did uh oh god, that one that Bob Kibiot did. I can't remember the name of the show. He was prolific on on Fox for a long time with it. And uh, they would bring Whitley and I in to look at footage allegedly snuck out of area 51. And we'd say, that's so fake. I mean, (laughs) that's not real at all. And they would cut it and edit it to us saying it was real, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, but you know, Whitley and I appeared a bunch and uh, together and, and, you know, and in fact, Whitley's in, but something is there. He, He introduces it. So, kind of does a Rod Serling kind of thing. So and he's got a huge fan following and they didn't like the film. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Jeez. So one thing that was pretty cool and that was cool. Thanks for telling me that. And uh, yeah. So it just in photos. Cause again, IMDb is not hundred percent and it wouldn't have this, but just looking at the photos yeah. of your website, one thing that really stuck out was the Bob Euchre Miller light ad. Oh Yeah. Yeah, I, I I played the alien. I made the alien, and there were, if you watch the commercial, and I, oh, I have to, to find, find a copy of it. I'm sure it's on YouTube. I couldn't find it. And, oh, really? uh, oh, man. Yeah, but I would love to, because I, I think I have it on VHS still in, in a box in the garage, right? Uh, you got to put but, that on something. <laughs> 
Yeah, I know. Well, it was a great commercial. There were a lot of great people who worked on that besides me uh, and uh, Chris Wallace and I can't remember his first name. Chris Beggs, I think Rob Oteen was involved in that shoot too. There, there were a number of us. There was there was another show we did that was a TV show uh, that we all worked on too, right around the same time. But I play the character and I made the character main character. And as I'm walking in to the bar and I'm talking to the screen, and of course there's subtitles under me because I'm talking in an alien language, you'll see like these little Jawas walking next to me with their little glowing eyes. They're the puppeteers. Oh, wow. There wasn't any way to have tables long enough that we could, and there, there wasn't really radio control in those days. So they, that was my idea, was to have these guys cloaked in black, little glowing eyes, from walking next to me. And they're the ones making my eyelids blink and the mouth, the the, uh, the lips snarl and move, and you know, and, and the eyebrows move and everything on it. So that was a lot of fun. I loved doing that commercial. So I think I found it. You did. I'll, I'll email it to you, and then you can take a look and tell me if it's it. Yeah, it says oh, 19, cool. Was it nineteen eighty five? Says, yeah, it must have been. It says Blorg famous X space monster commercial. Yeah, I, I think that's it. Oh wow, yeah, I'll send it over. Yeah, it what, you, when you when you search for it, you don't find it, but I found it when I Googled it. But now that's pretty cool. Huh. So is, is there like a favorite moment from your career, like something that you worked on that looking back, if it was like, say, if, I don't know if you're a sports fan, but Baseball Hall of Fame, you know, say there's a special effects Baseball Hall of Fame and you could put on that cap. Is there like a yeah. film or one thing you did that you're like, wow, that's that's it? Star Trek. Star Trek, Absolutely yeah. Star Trek. Yeah, the Star Trek, the motion picture. I mean, you know, I was only in my mid-20s to get a phone call from Fred Phillips, and he had this gravelly voice. He said, hey, Steve, you want to work on Star Trek? And I was like, okay, Fred, what's the joke? Star Trek <laughs> ended a long time. He said, oh, no, we're making a movie. I'm down here at Paramount. I need your help. I said, really? He said, yeah, get down here. I, you know, I can still feel how I felt at that moment. I, I was just, oh, I must have ran outside and screamed at the sky. I was so excited. And I feel the emotion still that I would get to go and work with that cast, to work with Gene Roddenberry and Robert Wise. I mean, just, it, it was, it was godlike, you know, <laughs> it was a godlike moment. And going down there and Fred saying, uh, throwing these ears on the table. So you think you can make these, make them look exactly the same. And it's like, Oh my God, Spock was my favorite character in high school. And you're asking me to do his ears. <laughs> Did you have to like look in the mirror before you got there and say, just be cool. You're one of them. <laughs> yeah. Another great moment was a, was a more recent one. And of course oh, cool. being a huge, being a huge fan of, of 2001, I, I, in my career, I have met so many people. I've worked with Betty Davis and, and just, you know, Broderick Crawford, and Lloyd Nolan, all these amazing people. But one day, this guy brought Gary Lockwood to my studio. And I've been friends with Gary for about the last seven years. And about three years ago, I met Dan Rector. And Dan Rector, of course, played Moonwatcher in the Dawn of Man sequence in 2001. Yeah. So I've known both these guys for a while. Gary comes over pretty often to the studio. I like to hang out. We go to lunch and stuff great guy and he loves 2001 even more than i do which is impossible <laughs> and so dan comes over to do a podcast with us and talk about what it was like to work with kubrick and, and develop that whole sequence of the dawn of man and of course he's the guy that throws the bone up in the air 
and I had made a replica of Moonwatcher. I'm sure you've seen it. And I made it the way Stuart Freeborn did back in the day. I always wanted to recreate it. So when he came over, you know, Gary and him hugged and said, boy, we're still alive. All this great stuff. This is before <laughs> the podcast. And I come, he wants to see the mask. So I bring him out to see it. And I said, do you want to try it on? And he said, sure. Yeah, I'd like you. Can I? And I said, yeah. So he puts the mask on. So I suddenly like go backwards. Like it's like a scene in the movie where things all of a sudden slide backwards. I'm 16. I'm sitting in the theater in San Francisco and there's the Donna man sequence. And I see him in that ape outfit, uh, Australopithecus outfit in, in the opening scene in, in 2001. And I think, my God, here I am with the guy who actually played this, actually worked with Kubik, and he's wearing my recreation of it. And Mary was snapping away pictures. That was an incredible moment to be with those two heroes of mine. And the podcast that followed afterwards was amazing, listening to these two guys talk about their love for Kubrick, which I've heard from numerous actors and actresses like Sue Lyon, who I worked with early in my career, spoke so highly of him, and Keenan Wynn. And they're, they kind of lost track that they're in a podcast, just started having a conversation between themselves. And, and, and Gary said, you know, I would have paid Kubrick to, to bid in that film. He didn't have to pay me. And Dan said, me too. They were so honored to be part of that film. So that was an incredible moment in my career to, to be with those two gentlemen, to be, let alone be friends with them and hear them talk so highly of a man I admire so much as I do Stanley Kubrick. And I feel because of them and my interactions with them have been allowed to that inner sanctum where I almost feel like I knew it myself now through their experience. So that's uh, kind of gone full circle from 16 years old, hitting that theater and deciding I wanted to go into the full film business to just a month or so ago, having that moment with them. So it never stops. That's awesome. What's the name of the podcast? SNG Now. is Mary, is it SNG Now? It's a podcast? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's on it's on Pod it's on iTunes and Podbean. Cool, I'll check it out. That's and awesome. If you listen to any of them, listen to that one. Gary Lockwood. I listen to a bunch uh, of them. No, I, I like it. I yeah. love the I love all your pictures on your website. So one more thing before I let you go, and thanks again for taking the okay. time. Was growing up all the time. I remember those McDonald's ads, and I see in, okay. all, in all your photos, uh, the you worked on the Moon Guy. Yeah, I I well you know. This is a Doug Jones story, isn't it? I mean, we know all know who Doug Jones is, correct? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I get this call to do a commercial that ironically has these sort of gray alien, close encounter type aliens in it. And they want me to make these suits and these very elaborate foam latex heads with fiberglass underskulls and, and radio controlled mechanics to make the eyes move and blink and the facial expressions. And they had a cattle call. They wanted to get a real tall, skinny guy to play the main alien. And there's Doug. So <laughs> Doug gets picked. I work with Doug. I put him through hell. He never complains once. He is the best person I ever worked with in a, in a creature suit. Uh, and he did that commercial. So flash forward a bit, I get contacted by McDonald's. They want me to do this moon man. And they had the artwork for it. So they wanted to pick somebody to, to, to go to be the moon guy. And I told them about Doug Jones and they got all of Doug Jones and, and they interviewed him and, and he got it. And so we made a life mask and I sculpted the head and 
still all the mechanics and stuff. And, and uh, we did the first commercial uh, and it stuck. It took off. It got really, really popular. And so for the next five years or more, we continually did that character, which brought me in a lot of money because we got residuals and it bought Doug his first house. Oh, wow. residuals are very high on that because it was on screen acting and puppeteering in those days was considered that. So I got the same residuals he did. Oh, nice. um, and it, it, it launched his career. And of course we know now today that Doug is of course, um, the alien character on the bridge of discovery, but he's done so many other great things. Oh yeah. Um, Labyrinth and Hellboy and, uh, so I've always been sort of proud of that one, <laughs> you know, that he's such cool. a wonderful human being and, and what a career he got out of, out of, you know, <laughs> my suggesting he would be good to do the moon guy. It's just really <laughs> funny. And he talks about it too, whenever he gets interviewed in podcasts and stuff about me and how I helped him and, and he's a very sweet guy. So that's a cool. Uh, that's what that was. That's what that was, was all about. In the end, when we did the last commercials, by that point, they got rid of all the puppeteers. One of them was Bob Burns, the famous Bob Burns, who's an old, old friend of mine, and my late wife, Jillian. And they controlled other features in the face. And later on, they, when radio control became more popular, they asked me to downside on the puppeteers. Could you do it all radio control and just have you do it? Uh, and then, of course, the, the, the Darren family sued McDonald's for stealing Bobby Darren's song, Mac Tonight, which really wasn't true i mean that song he stole from the three penny opera and put words to it but that's another story uh yeah it, you know it's so that kind of then they had to come up with their own song and the last thing i think we did was blast from the past was with that commercial where we shot at the original mcdonald's late at night and that was the last one i think we ever did oh wow so, that's cool. Well, yeah. Steve, thank yeah. you so much for taking the time. You're so very welcome. I love hearing the stories. But one thing I want to tell you before I let you go is I love the aha moments. Hearing the behind the scenes on all these films I grew up loving with all the people I've interviewed is so much fun. Right. The aha moments, like you going to the theater and seeing that film, 2001 Space Odyssey, and it changed your life. I interviewed right. Joe Alves, who was a production designer on Jaws, Close Encounters. He had one right. of those. He went and saw... I think the movie was called one night in Paris. He saw it in the late fifties with some girl when he was like 15. And he said, when he left the right. movie here, he thought that movie was in Paris. And then I think his parents or a friend told him, no, they did that. They shot that in Hollywood. They just, you know, made it look like Paris and he was like mind blown. So then he went to school. Right. That was like his eventual role. So uh, no, this has been great. Yeah. Films, filmmaking uh, has an incredible influence on our reality. And yeah. I mean, Star Trek is a really good example of that, you know, totally. uh, and, and many other sci-fi films. Cause first, you know, Albert Einstein had a great quote and he said, imagination is more important than knowledge. And whenever I've repeated that publicly, it gets me in a lot of trouble because people don't get it. You can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you don't have someone to imagine something that you can apply that knowledge to, to make, bring it into reality, then we never would have got to the moon because no, true. yeah, because you know, uh, Jules Verne wrote a story about three men being launched from Florida and landing on the moon. And we wouldn't rest till we did that. And we did it. Yeah. No, it has to be spoken into existence for people to have yeah. that idea in their mind. 
It happens every day, and it makes you worry about things like the movie Alien. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> that that Giger thing is out there, and you know it. <laughs> yeah. Man, could you imagine you're working on Leonard Nimoy's ears, and he's hovering over you? Man, just what a surreal moment, especially for Steve being such a huge Star Trek fan. And you can hear me in the interview get choked up when he mentioned, you know, that's when I learned about the passing of Tim Lawrence, who was one of the first guests that I interviewed. Man, Tim's a great guy. I, you know, right after this, I posted about it on Twitter. And I think like a week later, one of his nieces reached out to me and uh, it was really touching. They were really happy that I was able to capture Tim's stories because he didn't really talk about it that much. So Steve was awesome don't forget steve neils garage.com neil has two l's and i'll put it in the episode notes so you can check it out there your homework star trek 6 the undiscovered country it has kim cattrall in it so much more Whew. so don't forget to review rate share our podcast follow us on all social media at sequels only and don't forget to check out our website sequelsonly.com Good night.